Well, uh, I'll tell you the story of a girl named Kathy. Kathy broke my heart. I'm not talking about the Kathy I'm married to for almost 42 years next month. Um, I'm talking about Kathy, my first girlfriend when I was 16 years old. The first girl that proved to me I wasn't invisible. Uh, who actually, a girl that I liked who actually liked me back. Uh, and she broke my heart when she told me that her family was moving to another state. And I remember in that moment uh, just thinking, I, this misery, I'll never recover from this. This darkness is forever. How could I? I mean, by the way, I was never in love with Kathy. I was in love with being in love with Kathy. But anyway, I, uh, I just thought, I'm never going to recover. Six months later, I had recovered. Um, <laughs> such is the time. Uh, so fast forward, I'm in my late 30s, we have six kids, we're living in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and uh, we're building a swing set, my dad and I, uh, first time we ever kind of did a house project together, we are building a swing set in our backyard. And not just any swing set, a swing set that would last for generations, a mega swing set. <laughs> I was utterly convinced that my grandchildren would use that swing set. Less than five years later, we left that house, we left that beautiful assignment, just the everything going just exactly like we thought, this all, everything I could have imagined, all gone, never to return again. It's just the nature of life, isn't it? The times of our lives are unpredictable. The times of our life are given to us, not chosen by us. We pass through those times. We don't control those seasons of our life. That's why this book that we're going through, this book of Ecclesiastes this July, and I'm encouraging those of you who are here with me in July to stroll through the book of Ecclesiastes, is such a hope-giving book, particularly on this subject of the seasons of our lives that we're going to look at today. But I want to tell you a little bit about um, this book of Ecclesiastes by first telling you about the neighborhood it's in. If you were here last week, this is review, which will still be good for you. If you weren't, this is brand new perhaps. But the book of Ecclesiastes is this little book in the Bible, and it's surrounded by these other books that are all known as the wisdom literature of the Bible. So it starts with the book of Job. Job is an interesting book. And all of these books have one thing in common. They're, in a sense, they're all like a beautiful city park. There's parts of them, like we read this morning in Job 26, there's parts of them that are beautiful, that just make you wonder at the beauty of God. But it's a city park where if you, if you walk through it long enough, you'll come across a dead body. There are things in the wisdom literature that are deeply disturbing. And, and Job is an example of that. Job begins by telling us why Job has to suffer and suffer terribly. But at the very end of the book of Job, there are 66 questions that basically say to Job, I'm not going to explain to you why you had to suffer. The audience knows why Job suffered. They see it in the picture of God's plan, but Job never gets the answer from God. The book of Psalms, they're pretty straightforward. A lot of these Psalms teach us how to pray. They teach us how to praise. They teach us how to lament. 
But what do you do about the Psalms that call down the curses of God on your enemies? Where does that fit into our prayer life? Which, by the way, we won't be doing that at the concert of prayer next week, <laughs> just uh, to be clear. Uh, and then there's this interesting book, the Song of, Sol- Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, it's called. It's really a story about uh, human romance, but it's ultimately not a story about just human romance. It's about the fact that human romance is pointing to the ultimate human intimacy that we will have with God. It's pointing to a human intimacy that we will all have as believers with one another that far surpasses marriage, so surpasses it that sexuality is no longer necessary in order for human intimacy to happen. So these strange books in, in, uh, in this wisdom literature uh, give us this sort of beauty and mystery all at the same time. And finally, you come to these two books, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, that could not be more different than each other. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a vanity and emptiness that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom, whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. In other words, life isn't just. It's not fair. It's not what it ought to be. And yet Proverbs tells us in the word of almost a promise, no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. So it would seem like these books are books of contradiction. And of course, some people who don't study the scriptures long enough draw that conclusion. But it's a shallow conclusion. Uh, That's why G.K. Chesterton put it so clearly when he said there's something going on here. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are the example of this. The real trouble with this world of ours is that it's not an unreasonable world, that's Ecclesiastes alone, nor even that it is a reasonable one, that is Proverbs alone. The commonest kind of trouble is that the world is nearly reasonable, but not quite. (laughs) That's the beauty of God's word. The main theme of all of these wisdom books is to fear God. Not in the sense of being afraid of God, but to become so enamored by God that our jaws drop in wonder at the fact that God can never be figured out. God is knowable, but he's not comprehensible. We can't fully understand him. Just as soon as we begin to act as though God is predictable, he will throw us a curve. And that's why God gives us several different windows in order to look in on him and get this picture that at the first glance seems like a contradiction, but in the end actually turns into a thing of wonder. And the book of Ecclesiastes here tends to get a very bad rap because it seems like, and, and some people do see interpretations as, a, as uh, the, the main idea for some with the book of Ecclesiastes is to say, this is what life is like without Christ. I guess that's a possible interpretation. I mean, a lot of people do see it that way. I actually think a uh, better interpretation Uh, one that is increasingly getting more and more weight over the course of centuries, is that this is simply what life is like, period. What Ecclesiastes does is it helps us face reality in a world that masters escaping reality. Ecclesiastes helps us face reality and with hope in a world that's constantly trying to escape it. It's one of the most hope-giving word of God in all of the Bible, I think, because it does this. It relieves us of the chase 
for happiness. It relieves us of the chase for happiness. Ecclesiastes is a detox program for the addiction to try to turn this place into paradise. It's not, and it never will be. And, and it's all about, uh, this book of Ecclesiastes, it's all about enjoying life, not mastering it. In a fallen world of exhausting uncertainty, the way forward is to fear God by finding contentment, by enjoying life in his providence. And today we'll see that with chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 3. The text is also in your uh, bulletin there. Let me read this uh, section of Ecclesiastes that's in very poetic form, very obviously. Those of you who grew up in the 60s could sing it, but um, I prefer you not. <laughs> for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And then this great question, verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? So these first eight verses are meant to remind us of chapter one as well. In chapter one, you remember how it was describing creation. Well, you don't remember if you weren't here last week, but in chapter one, that's what it's doing. And it's describing this rhythm in creation. All the rivers flow to the ocean, yet the ocean's not full. There is just this, if you look around in creation, you will observe that there are these repeated patterns that, li that show that life is elusive, life is repetitive. Life doesn't seem to be going anywhere. That's just the nature of creation. Things remain the same. Nothing really changes. And he says, so with our own personal lives, they have a cadence to them. They have an ebb and flow to them that we cannot control. And so verse 9 says, so what are we toiling for? What are we trying to do with all our times? And I love this word, gain what are we trying to gain from all of our toil and that's what ecclesiastes is doing it's trying to it's trying to stop us for just a moment and ask us what are you doing what are you chasing what do you think you can accomplish in this world do you think you can master the seasons of your life do you think you can get control of them are you living as though life is predictable when over and over again the seasons of life are showing you that they are not? The fall, the fact that sin came into our world, means it's impossible for us to overcome chaos. 
we can deal with chaos, but we can't overcome chaos. Uh, Derek Kidner, who's a great Old Testament scholar, particularly on wisdom literature, puts it so clearly in this statement. We all dance to a tune not of our own making, and nothing we pursue has any permanence. Now, you can say that's a downer message, but I'm, I'm suggesting to you that God has written into the very seasons of life this truth, and we ought not to deny it. There's nothing you do that has real permanence. Yes, I, I realize that some of you, and I'm hearing myself say it right now, well, these kids that come to Christ are going to live on eternally. Yes, that does. Yes, that does. But that's not most of what we toil for, if we think, uh, think about what it is that we're toiling for. So, I think there's a beautiful uh, answer to this question in the rest of our text. How can we respond to the predictable unpredictability of life? That's what it goes on to talk about. How can we respond to the predictable unpredictability of life? And the first thing I would say is we need to embrace our ignorance. I was tempted to use that great Clint Eastwood line, but I guess it's so old now no one even knows it. A man's got to know his limitations. Uh, um, but, uh, but instead, we'll just go with this. Um, you got to embrace your ignorance. And there is this fascinating verse, uh, verse 11, but first let me read to you verse 10 because it transitions us from 9 to 11 beautifully. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business, or another translation says, I've seen the burden that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. There is this burden in this life. Because this is a fallen world, there's a burden nature to it. And God has kept us busy with it. But here's the hopeful verse, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And I want you to notice a couple phrases here. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. And what's this mean? That God has put eternity into every human being's heart. And the best way I would say it is God has put into human beings a longing to fully know the beauty of God's plan. Now, they may not even know it's God's plan. They may not be looking for God. They may not be looking for God's plan. But to put it a different way, there is in the heart of every human being a longing for paradise. The image of God, which is still in every human being, whether you believe in God or not, it's almost as though the memory of the Garden of Eden has been frozen for all of time in every human being that has been born since Adam and Eve. There's some sense in which the world isn't right and I'm craving a right world. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to try to turn this world into paradise. Uh, some, have, you know, some have quoted the uh, famous verse from the French philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal, which there is in the heart of every human being a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill, but we try to fill it with everything else. But it's not just God. It's not like we need just God only. We need everything God has for us. We need other human beings. We need a world without uh, a, a creation that's falling apart. All of that God has made for us. And in us is this longing, this sense of eternity in man's heart that drives us and generates all kinds of responses from us. But at the same time, God has done, worked in such a way that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I mean, this is a weird verse if you think about it for a minute. 
You're telling me God has put a longing in my heart to, to fully know his, the beauty of his plant. Yes. And at the same time, he's also limited me from ever being able to know it. Yes, because that's what sin has done. God hasn't eradicated that longing, but sin has definitely limited that longing. And that's the world in which we live. That's the tension uh, in, in which we live here. The way I, I, uh, I appreciate the ESV study Bible, it says this in its notes. Both the desire to understand all of life, as well as the limitations on our ability to do so, are both ordained by God. That's the tension that we live in. So we embrace our ignorance by realizing we can't fully get around this whole thing. We can't fully understand this. You see, mom and dad ate from the wrong tree, and it just really messed us up. We can never stand back far enough to fully see everything God sees. Or, as Jason read from Job 26 today, Job turns to his friends that are trying to say, Job, your suffering is simple. We, we know what the problem is here. And Job, Job doesn't know what the problem is either, by the way. But Job knows enough to say, oh, what, what great counsel you've given to me. Oh, this is really helpful. And then he goes off on this rabbit trail of, have you ever stopped and thought about how strange God is? Almost every line in that passage that uh, Jason read for us, God is the God who can basically take the sea and turn it into a boiling uh, pot and at the same time make it so gentle that he can just you know, calm the waters. This God that we know can do anything and yet everything he does defies full explanation. And by the way, guys, we are only seeing the fringes of God's way. So don't sit there and tell me you can, dis you can discern God's full comprehensive voice on my problem. <laughs> that doesn't mean we don't know certain things, though. But we need to be careful about that knowledge puffing us up and making us declare more than we can declare. We need to embrace our ignorance. And then the real heart of this verse is right here. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And so I think the other thing that we need to learn to do is to enjoy the beauty of God in whatever season we happen to be in. We can't control our times, but we can fear the one who does. We can fear him by looking for and expecting, even when we can't see it, that God is doing something beautiful in the season that I happen to be in. He's declared it to be that way. In fact, the Bible calls it something called providence. Let me give you the more encyclopedia definition of providence. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that, number one, he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, he cooperates with these created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. That's the reason there is some degree of predictability in life, by the way. That's why science can happen. And directs them to fulfill his purposes, which is what? Well... That's where Ephesians 1 is a beautiful verse that helps fill this in. What is it that God is doing with every single thing in life, from every molecule to every man? 
Well, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And here's the plan. At the right time, God is bringing everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Jeff prayed it this morning. Thy will be done on heaven as on earth. And he's making everything work out according to his plan. Meaning that literally everything is flowing toward this. This is what we're toiling for. This is the only thing we should be toiling for. Uh, But this is why it's so difficult for us when we try to turn this world into paradise before God's timing and before God himself does it. Uh, But this is every single thing that is happening in our life. Every single thing that is happening in our life is like a great big funnel that's all flowing toward one thing. That's not just true for believers. That's true for every single human being. It's all racing toward a culmination when Christ will be king over all. He already is king over all, but it's yet to be realized by all. And that's why verses 12 and 13 say, So stop toiling to try to change reality. Instead, there's nothing better, verse 12, than to be joyful and to do good as long as you live. Also to eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil. This is a gift to you from God. That toil may never get you what you want. So just enjoy the toil itself as a gift from God. Live in the moment. Stop trying to be God. Stop trying to know it all. Stop trying to solve it all. Let me give you just four simple applications from just this idea here. Think about decisions that you've made. Let's be really honest here. We've rarely ever in our life made an absolutely right decision. What we've done is just made our best guess decisions. There's no way we can say with absolute certainty that most of our decisions are flawlessly right unless it's about something clearly moral that God has already declared right and wrong. Have you ever wondered about that? Is, did I make the best decision? Did I make the right decision? Well, you can't always know that, right? You can't, but you can entrust those decisions to the one who does oversee those decisions. I love this passage in Proverbs 16. I've memorized it. And used it many times over so many decisions I've made, like the decision to leave Oregon, for example. Was it the right decision? I'll never really know in my life. At the time, it certainly seemed right. But Proverbs 16 tells us some very helpful counsel in this area. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Verse 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or the very last verse of Proverbs 16 says, the dice is cast into the lap and it's every decision is from the Lord. At the end of the day, somehow, even if I made a stupid decision with wrong motives that I thought was right at the time, God is such a God that he will somehow work that into the magic of what he's up to. And that's comforting. Or what about unfulfilled longings? Have you had something that you've been chasing your whole life that you can't seem to figure out? You can't seem to kind of solve? 
I tell you, I have as a pastor in this church, and that is building community. I mean, we've got great community. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But I have this picture in my mind that the scriptures constantly give me, particularly in the book of Acts, of what community is like. And it has, I've just racked my brains to try to figure out how to do that in a world where everybody's busy and isolated and commutered out and all kinds of other things. How do we really get that kind of biblical community? And I have found that if I am not careful, I will become bitter and cynical at, that, at the lack of progress in that effort. And here's how God makes everything beautiful in its time. I've discovered that even in not achieving the progress that I'd like to see, a wonderful thing has happened. God has exposed the motives of my heart because that desire to get community is filled with both good motives and bad motives. And if I had gotten it right away, I don't think I would have ever discovered those bad motives. But what's more important is I have come to learn that apart from God, we can do nothing. And I'm, I find myself more and more utterly dependent upon the Lord to do what I know I never can. And maybe in the scope of things, what God really wanted to do is create someone with a dependent, more purified motive heart than he did to get this thing that was on my heart to begin with. What about the pressure to be up on everything? And I think we need to be really honest here. We are not as smart about the world as we think we are. Here's a great line that I'd like you to practice giving out to other people whenever you bring up any kind of opinion. And by the way, I, I blew it Friday night because I wish I had remembered this before Friday night when I did just the opposite. But the line is this. You know, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm not even sure that it matters that much. That hardly ever comes out of my mouth, but it needs to. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that this is permission to be irresponsibly uh, uh, uninformed. Uh, instead, I'm saying that Ecclesiastes is a directive to enjoy life, not try to master it, and to enjoy it by, by focusing on what we do know, that God is a promise keeper, and that he, he's, or he's a promise maker and a promise keeper, and never to be consumed with the anger and anxiety of things when the world isn't going the way we want it to. Psalm 37 has a beautiful comment to that uh, about not fretting about evildoers. Uh, and not trying to always have a perfect answer for the evil that's in the world either. Uh, Psalm 37. says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. They will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. In other words, you know all those controversies that we have to keep up on and that capture our emotions and our attention. I bet you can't remember the controversies that were pre-COVID. I bet they've already come and gone. And these will come and go too. Trust in the Lord instead. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give, your desire, give you the desires of your heart. There's a, there's a calmness to that perspective that I appreciate. And then finally, do we ache for different seasons of life? Are you living in the past? That young love named Kathy? <laughs> uh, are you living in the future? I can't wait till I graduate. I can't wait till I have kids. I can't wait till the kids are gone. 
Are you not living in the season God has for you right now? But what if you're trapped in Ecclesiastes 3, 4, the first part of that? There's a time to mourn. What do you do if you're trapped in that kind of time? Well, you can start by telling yourself, verse 11, that somehow in this time, God is making everything beautiful in its time. Tell yourself that God is here. He's actively here. He's an artist that specializes in turning mourning into beauty. The time to weep and the time to mourn may not be permanent. There are splashes of laughter and dancing even in the times of mourning. And by the way, should you stop and just think about this for a moment? We live in a fallen world, a broken world that can't be fixed until Christ returns. Our nature as human beings is to rebel against the presence of God. And yet in such a world, we have times when we can laugh. In such a world, there's times when we can dance. Do you realize how undeserving and surprising and beautiful that is? God makes everything beautiful in its time. We can't fix the ugliness of reality, but we can experience sneak peeks of the beauty in it. And we can recognize them as expiration dates on reality and as something new breaking in. That's the hope of Ecclesiastes. This isn't silver lining theology. This is the kind of theology that helps you when you can't find a silver lining. That's what Ecclesiastes does. One last thought that's perfect for us as we come to Bread and Cup, and I'll save it for that moment. But I want to invite the worship team back up and the guys serving communion here. And, and in just a moment, all of you who call Jesus your Savior, all of you who recognize Jesus as your King, this is your table. It's not Red Cedar's table. It's his table. He invites you here to take of his body and blood and to remember how he, how his death and his resurrection have forever said to reality that it won't be real forever. <laughs> He's permanently promised to change reality. And then there's this last verse in Ecclesiastes 3.15 that's very sobering. Basically what this verse tells us is that our timeless God collects all of our times. Let me read it for you. This is both 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has worked or done it so that people fear before him. And then he says this, that which is, that, that which is right now and in the past, it's already been. That which is to be the future already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is why you pay people large amounts of money to go to seminary. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> it's a difficult verse for sure, and it sounds kind of clever, uh, but really what's it saying? It's the idea that all things in life ultimately will become accountable before God. Just like I said, the funnel of life is coming down. The very last verse of Ecclesiastes ends with this thought. We will all stand before God and become accountable for every season of our life. 
So in other words, uh, as David Gibson says in his excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes, God goes out and fetches all the times of our lives. That's the idea of he, he seeks what's been driven away. And he brings it to count. So everything, every season, every li- everything in our life contributes to our future forever time. If you're outside of Christ, every moment in your life where there's just been a split second where you've heard God show you and, 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 and speak to you and say, this life is unpredictable. You'll never find paradise here. You'll only find it in me. Every moment when life has disappointed you and you've just given up that and chased after another false God till that false God has disappointed you. Every single one of those moments when there's a glimmer of of your conscience awakening and drawing you to the only one who has the answer and you've walked away from it, all of those will be collected and cause you to give an account. Hebrews 10 says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Especially if time after time after time, it says, you have trampled underfoot the offering of Christ. If you're outside of Christ, this table's the only thing that can save you. Coming and surrendering your life to Jesus as your only one who can save you and the only king who will give you a paradise you will never find here. But if you're in Christ, listen to this beautiful verse in 1 Peter chapter 5 which speaks about the way God collects all of our times so that none of them are wasted. This is a great text to think of even as we come to the table uh, this morning. 1 Peter 5 verse 10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, which is, by the way, this 80 or 90 years we have, it really is a little while. 500 billion years from now, it won't seem like much. After you have suffered for a little while, and by the way, this is a suffering reality. Guess what? The God of of inexhaustible grace, the God who called you, you didn't find him, he called you. The God who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, and I love this first word, restore. He will restore everything you've lost, everything that has scarred you, everything that has caused you to swim in doubts, All of that God will restore to you. Every chase of paradise, every time he's rescued again, again, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Let's take a moment, and then let's come to the table after I pray. Father, our times you have shown us over and over again are predictably unpredictable. We confess to you that we have been chasing certainty. We have been trying to control chaos. We've been trying to comprehend chaos, and we're exhausted from it. But thank you that the way forward, the way to fear you, is by finding relief in our inabilities to master this life. 
and enjoy the beauty that you paint for us into every season of every scene of life, all because Christ himself began that beautiful picture through his death and resurrection, and we praise you.